Well, good morning. As we uh, get ready to open up God's Word, Alexa is very excited, <laughs> uh, which is a good thing. We should be excited to hear the Word of God. Uh, we'll be jumping right in and reading, starting at uh, verse 15 of chapter 1. Uh, and as you flip there, I will give you just a quick tidbit of information that is actually totally irre irrelevant to understanding this, but it kills time while you flip there. Uh, verse 15 is actually in chapter 2. Uh, but for some reason, when they divvied up all of the chapters and the verses hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago, they put it in chapter 1 in all the English and Latin Bibles. But if you open up a Hebrew Bible, it's in chapter 2. And hopefully you've had enough time and you've gotten to this point in the fake chapter 1, really chapter 2, uh, to read though. But let's start. Verse 15 of chapter 1, the book of Nahum, the word of God. Behold, upon the mountains... The feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. The scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob. As the majesty of Israel, for plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. The shield of his mighty men is red. The soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches, they dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are opened. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She is carried off. Her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. Desolate, desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. All faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions where the lion and the lioness went, where his cubs were with none to disturb? The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that as we open up Nahum, as we're now into the thick of your judgment and just how it's going to come on that great and wicked city, we get to see the glory and majesty that you are at work in bringing justice to the nations. Father, we thank you 
that we are reminded through this story and so many other stories that there is no power in this world that can stand against you, no evil that will not eventually be put out by you. Father, you are the holy, majestic, powerful, sovereign God. We thank you for your work. We thank you that we get to see this messenger who brings good news and publishes peace for your people. Father, might we rejoice in the peace and the good news of your messenger this morning. Father, help us to rightly understand these words. Help us to apply them correctly to our lives that we might be your obedient servants this morning. Amen. And so as Nahum has continued, we get to this spot at the end of the first chapter in verse 15 when his tone changes. If you've been with us the last few weeks, if we've been going through the book of Nahum, he opens up his book here with an exaltation of God, who is God. He is the one who is all-powerful. He is the one who controls all things. His, he alone controls the destiny even of mankind and creation. His ways are the ways of the whirlwind and the storm, and thus he is the only God who should be worshipped. He's the one who is truly sovereign. And then we get into that second half of chapter 1, where he's beginning to pronounce the liberation of Judah and the judgment coming against Nineveh. But then here, as we get to chapter 15, we get to step into a future event that Nahum is prophesying about. And this entire section, starting at verse 15, going through the end of chapter 2, is centered around the news of this messenger. He brings news from far away. Both in the story, news from the battle report from Nineveh, and far away in terms that this is actually a future event that he is bringing news to the people of a present day. What is this? It's the news of the extent, the battle report of the destruction of the great city Nineveh. Yes, it would be cut off, as God has made clear in the beginning, and Nahum has already said in Nahum chapter 1, but the messenger brings the full report of what this cutting off will indeed look like. And so we ask, who is this messenger, the him who brings good news? Well, he's the one who's like a scout in the army. He runs ahead. He's probably really fast. He's probably kind of small. His only job in the army is to run far. It'd be like if I was in the army when I was younger, uh, pre-marriage, and I could run a lot more and wait a little bit less. I could run for far periods of time, but I was not very big and strong. I'm a, I'm a meager man right? Uh, that's why I drive a big Ford excursion, got to compensate. Uh, but anyway, right, these scouts, these scouts that are in, in the military, but, you know, they're not the most reliable men to have next to you in battle, get the great privilege of running to announce news to the nations, or if they need to get ready because the battle's coming to them. And so this scout is somebody who brings the report of the battle. And so Nahum, as he's writing this, is not just saying, Nineveh will fall. God will surely destroy it. He is going to tell people uh, and the people of God the details of Nineveh's fall as it would be reported in a battle message. And so this messenger brings this news and he declares it. This is an event that has not yet happened, but because God has declared it to be, it certainly will be so. We can break up this entire section in two uh, parts. The first part is a message of destruction, and the second is a message of deliverance. 
So if you're somebody who loves to take notes, everything's going to happen under these two brackets, message of destruction and a message of deliverance. Where do we see this message of destruction? Well, right away in chapter 1, or verse 1 of chapter 2. The scatterer is coming. Prepare for battle. It's not going to be good for you, Nineveh. Muster all of your strengths. Get ready because this man is coming. Who is this scatterer? Well, it's probably an allusion to the Babylonians. Why is he called a scatterer? Well, because the Babylonians adopted the Assyrian policy of conquering nations and then scattering those conquered nations all over the rest of their empire. This is what happens to the northern tribe of Israel when the Assyrians had conquered it the century previous that Nahum is certainly aware of. The, the people of Assyria, which their capital is Nineveh, have come in. They conquered the northern tribes. Then they deport everybody all over the world and import people from all over the world. And so you get a hodgepodge of people who this isn't really their land, but they live here now. It's actually a great military strategy because these people don't have anything to fight for. This isn't really my home. This isn't really my land. So am I really going to try to rise up and take it back from these people who are oppressing us? And so the Babylonians begin to adopt through history, we know this, the same policy. And part of God's judgment against Nineveh is that Nineveh is going to experience the same fate. Their civilization, not just their city, but their very way of life is going to be ruined because they are going to be deported and sent all over the world. The scatterer is coming. Now this is shocking news because the people that are reading this when Nahum writes knows that Nineveh seems like an indestructible city. It's the most powerful city in the entire world. The Assyrian Empire has wealth and warriors without end. Nahum is saying something shocking. There is a bigger army coming, a scatterer who's going to come. Ready yourself for this battle. O Nineveh, defend yourselves. But as we see as the chapter continues along, the defense from the Ninevites will not be sufficient. Why? Because the judgment of God is coming at the hand of the Babylonians. And the judgment of God is a sure judgment, one from which they cannot be saved. There is going to be no Jonah this time coming and saying, repent or be destroyed in 40 days. The end has been written. The time of Nineveh has come to an end. God will destroy this enemy. They cannot save themselves, though they will try. Their army, their walls, their wealth, all will be rendered completely worthless in protecting him. In this unfolding scene, though, Nahum makes crystal clear exactly what is happening. Lest somebody say, well, the Babylonians are just really powerful, he pauses in verse 2 and says, For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob. Why does he say this? Because he wants to make it crystal clear that the scatterer, this great and powerful army that's going to destroy the people of Nineveh and, this, and the Assyrian Empire as a whole, comes because they are an instrument of the Lord. They come because he is using them to bring judgment on Nineveh. God is working to restore his people and their majesty. He's going to save his people from those who have plundered them. Three ways we'll see as the story unfolds that Nineveh attempts but cannot save themselves. The army of Nineveh cannot save them. 
The city walls cannot save them. Even their wealth cannot save them. All of these things fall at the onslaught of this great scatterer. And so as we continue here, as we continue to read through chapter 2, it's important for us to slow down enough to see what exactly is happening. If we're not careful, we now get to verse 3, where it says, the shield of his mighty men is red, and we have no idea what army this is talking about. Is this talking about the Ninevites? Is it their mighty men that their shields are red? Is it talking about the Lord? Is it his mighty men's shields that are red? Or is it talking about the, the, uh, the coming scatterer? If we're reading too fast, we fail to delineate between these different camps. And so we have to look and say, who is this? Who is this in verse 3 that has these mighty men clothed in red, that their shields are out, uh, and there's flashing metal and, and all these chariots? What exactly is this? Who is this? Well, the point of view as Nahum is writing is constantly that of somebody looking at this coming event unfolding. And so here in verse 3, we have this coming scatterer who is slowly encroaching on the city. It's this scatterer's army whose soldiers are literally clothed in red. What is that? Probably an allusion to being stained in blood. Their shields, their clothes, they are a horrific, war-torn and war-hardened army. When you look at them, you see blood, you probably smell blood. The glimmer of the spears, the shields and clothes stained with blood, chariots rushing through the streets, ever enclosing on the capital. And so the people began to panic. This great army moves and moves and moves. And we get to verse 5, and the character changes. He remembers his officers. Who is the he? Well, now it's switched to the king of Nineveh. And the chaos of battle, his army is not well prepared any longer. There's disorder and dysfunction everywhere. So the king, the commander of the army, remembers his officers. Perhaps they will restore order and we will be spared from this coming army. Maybe we can withstand these great and terrible forces. But the picture here in verse 5 is the exact same. As the officers are scrambling in the midst of this powerful army coming and enclosing on the city of Nineveh, they finally get up to the towers to watch out, to assess, to try to make a battle plan to defend this city. What do they see? The siege tower is already set up. They realize they're overmatched and there's nothing they can do to stop this army. Perhaps they think the wall will stop them, but who knows? The siege tower is there. And then we get into verse 6. The river gates are open. The palace melts away. And it's a weird kind of sidebar from this great and furious army. All of a sudden, there's a river. The river gates are open. The palace melts away. Why does this matter? Well, as we read, we begin to see this means the walls have been broken down. The battle is lost. The last line of defense, the great walls of the city of Nineveh, will no longer keep this army out. And inter interestingly enough, here, the gates of the rivers probably refers 
to these type of sluices that brought water into the city. If you remember back when we started two weeks ago, we talked about the great Nineveh at its height had all these aqueducts that would bring water in and supply water for the people of the city. Well, when an army would, would start to enclose on something like this, it's siege warfare. They cut off all the water, they cut off all the food, and so they would stop up these uh, literal rivers that were man-made that brought water to the city. But what happens, as we know from history, is they would open this up and it would flood the, flood, uh, the walls and perhaps break them down. And this exactly corresponds with the Greek historian uh, Diodorus Siculius, uh, who indicates that when Nineveh fell through Greek history, so this is a Greek history text, not a biblical text, Greek history text, that there was a series of heavy rains that flooded the river, flooded parts of the city, and overthrew the wall for about two miles. So literally, we know from history that when Nineveh finally fell in 612, it fell partly because of this great storm that came that caused the water to be overflowing and caused the destruction of the walls of the city. The army could literally march right in. God works even into the future, right? For us, it's like, how could we know that would happen? How do we know exactly uh, if God is reliable? Well, this is one way through many in Scripture that we see God has said something, and he didn't just say Nineveh is going to be destroyed. He has told us exactly how it will happen, and then here we have it, 40, 50 years later, he literally sends a flood to break down the walls so that when we read verse uh, 6 of the book of Nahum, years down the road, when it says, the river gates are opened, the palace melts away, we say, oh yeah, that's exactly how it happened. God works. He knows the future. He controls all things. Nahum is trying to help his people and us today understand this time and time again. But what is the result for the people of Nineveh? The once powerful city is stripped and carried away into exile by the same international policy that, made, uh, that they had made famous themselves. Nothing is left of the hustle and bustle of this once great city. Nothing that is except the mourning of a small remnant of its female servants. And there's an expression of the deepest agony, of heartfelt emotion, as these few women servants who are left in the rubble of this great city pound their chest and cry out in hopelessness because of the destruction of their once glorious home. Such is the judgment of God. There is no escaping it. There's no overcoming it by our own strength. There is no amount of work, preparation, resources, strategy, whatever else you want to put into this box that will stand the test of time that can stand against God. If God is not in it, it will certainly fail. We should be careful as God's people who want to plan and to be careful about what we do to not put our trust in institutions, but rather put our trust in God. So often in our day and age, we are tempted to trust in things like the United States of America. It's a beautiful country. I love our country. I'm glad that we live here, right? I'd much rather be here than anywhere else in the world. But my trust is not in the United States of America for my life. My trust is only in God. The judgment of God is sure. There's no institution on earth that can stand against him. We must be careful as his people 
to not plan or trust in our own wealth or our own security or our own planning or our own preparation, even our own strength, if, or, or rather than God, right? Our bodies are fickle. Even last week, I got an infection because I was at the beach and I couldn't move my knee for like three days. It was super embarrassing, right? You got a skin infection at the beach. I mean, California's dirty. We all know that, but, uh, right? So you can laugh at that. It's okay. My wife's from California and can make these jokes, all right? But our bodies, in the minute, they break down, right? We don't even know it. In the middle of church last week, I couldn't move my leg, right? Fine in one minute, the next, you can't walk. This happens with the Lord. We can't trust in our own selves, in our own plans, in our own understanding, or even things like our own government. Our trust should always be firmly in the Lord, We see repeatedly in this section, wealth can't save you, walls can't save you, warriors can't save you. To trust in anything other than God is foolishness. So Nahum's going to now finish this chapter. As Nineveh has fallen with a very specific focus on the temple or the palace of the city. It's very fitting. These brutal Assyrian monarchs for centuries have dominated human lives And they will have no more residence on this earth. This great evil with their kings and queens and princes specifically will be eradicated. And it's to these rulers, these monarchs, that Nahum turns his attention as he finishes the description of what is happening and unfolding. In verse 11, he says, Where is the lion's den? The feeding place of the young lions where the lion and the lionesses went, where his cubs were with none to, uh, with none to disturb. The lions tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. The language of lions here is not used for no reason. These rulers of the people of Nineveh, the Assyrian kings, often had uh, commissioned for themselves representations carved into uh, stonework that presented themselves as lions. Even in their own writings and their own histories that they would have recorded, they often referred to themselves or referenced the behavior of lions. They were a powerful and unstoppable force. This is not lost on Nahum now as he writes about the downfall of Nineveh. O. Palmer Robertson, in his commentary, puts it very vividly when he says this. Two elements of the lion's behavior stand out. The brutality of his predatory ways and his instinct to provide for his clan. Without concern for the feelings of his victims, the lion strips and shreds and tears flesh from his prey, whether living or dead. Totally oblivious to the shrieks of agony coming from its victim, the predator plunges his bloody muzzle again and again into the warm and cringing flesh. Having satisfied his immediate cravings, the beast drags the carcass to his lair where all his bloodthirsty brood may join in the feast. Human sensitivities recoil at the sight of such brutality. But what is to be said when the same kind of behavior characterizes man made in the image of God? How could a human being made to reflect the compassion of the creator sink to such levels of bestiality? Yet it is not merely a dramatic figure of speech by Nahum. The kings of Nineveh themselves chose to memorialize their greatest feats in terms only fitting of the wild beasts of the earth. They suspended their corpses from poles. They tore their skin off and affixed it to the city walls. 
I let dogs, swine, wolves, vultures, the birds of the heavens, the sweet water fish devour their cut off limbs, they wrote. The people who lived in the city and had not come out and had not acknowledged my rule, I slew. I chopped off their heads and cut off their lips. I bored through his jaw with my cutting dagger, pulled a rope through his cheek and the sides of his face and attached a dog chain to him and let him guard the cage at the east gate of Nineveh. These samples of brutality taken from the works of only one of the kings of Nineveh could be multiplied easily. Torture and inhumanity of the worst sort were a major characteristic of royal life. For 200 years, they have ravaged the various peoples of the ancient East, just as lions prowl daily for their prey. But Nineveh finds out it has one adversary that it cannot so easily manhandle. One more mighty than all the kings of the earth has set himself against this ungodly community. He shall bring this tyrant down to the lowest place on the earth. So Nahum asks, where is this den of the ferocious lion with the lionesses and the cubs? Where's the king, the queen, the princes of Nineveh? They've gone to their palace where none could disturb them. Another word for that means to bring to fear or to startle. They felt secure in their capital, in their little den. Nobody could come get us here. But he says, it's all been destroyed. Their temple, the palace, it's melted away. The lions are put to shame and defeat is at hand for the Lord is against them. This is what comes to all of God's enemies. And although we could look at this and it is a direct prophecy against Nineveh, Nineveh also serves as a type. And so we can read this today and find encouragement because just as Nineveh is a great and wicked city that God is going to bring judgment on and deliver his people from, so also God will bring judgment on every other form of evil in this world. When we look and see all of this chaos around us, we don't dis uh, despair because we know our God destroys even the most seemingly indestructible ones. If they are evil, God will take them out. Just as Nineveh is destroyed, every other evil and form of evil that opposes God will be destroyed in time as well. And so we as Christians look to this. And we long for the day of God's final judgment when he wipes out evil from this earth. Nineveh serves as a message of comfort and hope because our God is a God who saves. And so then that brings us to those opening words, the message of deliverance, the comfort for God's people. Verse 15, behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, keep your feasts, O Judah, Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. The messenger comes, and he proclaims good news and peace. The enemy has been defeated. There is deliverance for God's people. This is, without a doubt, the best news one can receive. Nahum has gone in his book at, to great lengths to show the severity and the supremacy of God. 
over the nations, over the people. The people might even be worried that their own apostasy that they've committed in the past as they've imported all of the Assyrian and Ninevite gods and worshiped them in the temple and all sorts of wickedness might bring destruction on themselves. But what does the messenger bring? A message of peace. God has delivered you. Rejoice. Keep your feasts. Fulfill your vows, O Israel. God works and has worked. We know today he does this through sending his son. He sent his son and he sent the spirit so that his people today can receive that same good news, the deliverance. The pledge that the people give in response is simple. We will follow you. While the people of this world and the things of this world fail, there is one who doesn't. His son, the son, Lord Most High, Jesus Christ. And so as we reflect on this messenger coming, we might remember those good words spoken in Luke 2, right? Perhaps the most frightening evening of all for these poor little shepherds in the field. They're hanging out, playing cards or making marshmallows on the fire. Who really knows? I don't know what shepherds did back then. Uh, probably not sleeping because who can sleep? And there's all these sheep making this noise around, right? The shepherds are in the field. Luke chapter 2, you know this. It's the Christmas story. And then out of nowhere, bang, the sky is filled with a multitude of angels. If we're honest and we see that, like, I'm running. Like, oh no, what's happening? Like, this is unexpected. But what do the angels say as they all show up? Luke chapter 2, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ Jesus is born. God sent his Son. That is the ultimate message. What is our response as we hear the great message come to us? That we have good news? Well, Nahum says, keep the feasts, fulfill the vows. So how do we do this? How do we keep the feasts and fulfill the vows when we are now not in this same context, right? We're not keeping the Passover feast. We haven't done, we haven't done all these things. We're not Jewish, right? We don't keep the feasts of the people of the Old Testament. So how do we do this? Well, one of the ways we keep the feast is we gather with believers, the Old Testament feasts were these memorial feasts to remind people of the work of God. What has he done? Right? Passover is this wonderful feast when God literally saved them, spared them from judgment in Egypt and brought them out of captivity into freedom. And so they're supposed to keep the Passover feast so that this story is passed on from generation to generation. Well, here in the New Testament, in God's covenant community, his church, we have a feast every week. We gather as God's people to break bread, to drink together, to remember what he has done. We can keep the feasts when we remember and proclaim the continual work of God and what he has accomplished through his son, Jesus. Our gatherings, week in and week out corporately, are a way that we keep the feasts. How about fulfilling the vows? Well, what is the vow that we make with the Lord as Christians today? 
Well, when we become Christians, when we pledge our life to Jesus, we make a vow. We say, you are my Lord and I am your servant. One of the ways we don't keep the vow is we start to make ourselves the Lord and Jesus our servant. We begin to functionally live like Jesus is the genie from Aladdin that we can rub the little lamp and he's going to come out and make us Prince Ali, right? This is not the case. The vow that we make when we become Christians, you are Lord, we are not. Whatever you ask, I will do. I belong to you. And so we can keep the vow by remembering who we are and what God has called us to be, his humble servants saying, like Samuel, here I am, Lord, use me, speak to me, show me what you would have me do. The picture that we have here in verse 15, as this messenger brings this good news, is not like this solemn dirt kicking, oh, finally the Ninevites are dead. What do we have? The messenger probably sprinting as fast as he comes, cresting the mountain, like maybe tripping and falling as he comes down because he's so excited to bring this news. When he gets to the city, what do the people say? Are they like, well, finally, Nineveh, we don't got to worry about them anymore. No, they probably lose their mind and start running around shouting with joy because victory has come. The Lord has won. He's delivered his people. He's remembered and heard their cries. There's great shouting and victory for the people when they hear the news of the messenger. We should have that same joy when we hear the news of Jesus. Right Right now, the Powerball or whatever it is, is like almost $800 million. If somebody in this room won, they would freak out. Right? You would be so full of joy. But conversely, when we talk about what Jesus has done, the greatest good news of all we're like, hey, man, like, Jesus died for you. Did you get that? We're, we're solemn. We're held back. Rather than saying, listen, world, there is good news. The Savior has come. We mentioned that Nineveh is a type. So is the messenger. Nineveh represents all evil that God will eventually kill and destroy and have victory over. In the same way, the messenger is literally the one who brings the good news of the battle report. And what is the battle report? Christ has won. Paul picks up on these words from Nahum here in in chapter 10 of his book of Romans. He says this, For scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And here he's picking up on Nahum chapter 1, verse 15, as he writes this, As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. The messenger in Nahum brings the battle report. The enemy is defeated. Rejoice, your God has given you victory. As we open up God's word, we see the battle report time and time again. We've seen how the end is written. We've read the pages. We can declare the same good news. Death is defeated. 
Christ has won. Shout the battle report as the captives are declared free. This should be our heart. When we encounter people who are trapped by the bondage of this world, thinking there's no end to their misery, no purpose for their life, no hope for their world, we point them to Jesus and say, he won. Turn to him and you will be free. He has set the captives free. We are called to be the messengers who say, God is not dead, he is alive. We should deliver this news, this message of freedom to his creation everywhere we go. For those that are his can break free, can break free from the bondage that they find themselves in, the oppression of this world, and they can rejoice in the freedom that Christ provides. And so we must ask ourselves as we begin to finish this morning, are we messengers? Do we bring the message of relief to the people who are overwhelmed and burdened with life? Do we run down the mountains saying, listen, Christ has won. Rejoice, O people of God. Rejoice, world that has been captive. Turn from this. They don't rule you anymore. Paul says, how can they call on him if they have not believed? How can they believe if they have not heard? How can they hear without someone telling them? There is a world that is hurting, abandoned, in captivity. We should be the messengers that tell them the good news. Today, a Savior has been born. He has come and he has set the captives free. In Christ alone, we and the world can find salvation. A few points as we finish of applications just to ask ourselves as we leave this morning. First, in what ways are you tempted or perhaps actively trusting in wealth, walls, or warriors for protection? What ways in your life are you trusting in things other than God for protection or perhaps even purpose? Second, Scripture tells us everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you've never done this, you should call on the name of the Lord and receive his promised salvation that he has won the battle, that he has provided victory for his people. Perhaps maybe today you feel hopeless and trapped in life. Call on the name of Jesus and know that he cannot be overcome. Secondly, if you've called on his name and you know him as Lord, what does your message to a hurting world convey? I feel that so often in life, we as Christians today, convey a message of doom, that life stinks, that the world is so miserable, we just are like Eeyore, moping around, totally feeling like there's no purpose or joy in life. This is not the joyous message that the Lord has given. He has given salvation and will definitely punish evil. We can rejoice in the sure victory of God and carry ourselves likewise. When people see us, do they see, see us as somebody who is hopeless or somebody that is full of hope because they know the end of the story? Finally, Nineveh is destroyed as all evil is destroyed eventually. Do you find comfort in the future work of God? One of the ways that we can find joy when we feel joyless is to look at the future work of God. It should provide great comfort. God is going to do this. 
As we read scripture, we know that on that day of judgment, when God comes, he's going to eradicate all evil, that we as Christians have a destiny that is written into the book of life, that we get to live with him forever and ever. Endless singing, which is really exciting for me. Probably, hopefully I'm better at it by then, right? But this is the, the hope, the future that we look to. Nineveh is destroyed, just like all evil. We should find comfort in the future work of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that we gather as your people, that we hear your word, that you come, that you destroy strongholds. Evil is restrained, Lord, and ultimately defeated. Not through the cunning maneuvers of us, Lord, but through your divine hand. And so we thank you. We rest in the severity and the sovereignty of you. Lord, we rest in the security of the victory of Christ, who we know has paid the price, who has won the victory, so that we might be counted as children of God Most High. Father, we thank you that as we open up these words, that you speak to us and show us and move in our minds and hearts to trust not in the things of this world, but Lord, to come to you and trust you for our purposes, for our salvation. Lord, let us not be people that feel overwhelmed and overcome, but instead be people who rejoice, for we know what you will do. The future judgment on all evil, the life in eternal bliss that we have with you. Lord, thank you for the assurance of that great and final victory. Amen.